season. And we're going to read the first 11 verses this morning. This is an incredible part of Scripture. I love this part of 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> We've traveled, excuse me, uh, through some um, teaching, some growing moments. And now God reminds us why we go through those growing moments. There's a reason for it. And the reason is found here. In verse number 1, notice what Scripture says. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. If ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more than they all. Yet not I but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Father, what an incredible portion of Scripture you have given us this morning. And God, I pray that as we look at the Gospel and as we remind ourselves of why we gather, of why we get up in the morning, of why we do what we do, God, I pray that you would help the gospel to shape us, to grow us, to mature us, and to help us to be established firm in truth this morning. Teach, guide, and direct us. I pray, God, if there's one that's here that does not know Christ, I pray they'll get saved. God, if there's one that's watching this morning, or watching even at a future time, that does not know Christ, I pray that today they will believe in the gospel of Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful, perfect, and all-powerful name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. This morning I want to give you three thoughts. I'm going to dive right in this morning because we're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture. I hope you have your Bibles ready, and I hope your fingers are ready to turn because we're going to be traversing through a lot of Scripture. I don't have much commentary on any of the Scriptures. Uh, we're just going to be looking at the Word of God and allow it to speak for itself this morning. But I want us to look at three thoughts this morning. First of all, may we remind ourselves of the hope for worship. The hope for worship in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, notice what the Bible says once again in verse number 1. Moreover, brethren. Remember, these last couple of chapters especially, Paul has dealt with some things going on in the church that have been, as, Paul, as we mentioned last week, not wholeheartedly received and would not be received. In fact, the church in Corinth would reject the words of Paul. And uh, it would take some time for the church in Corinth to come around to the truth that Paul gives. 
And Paul anticipated that this was going to be not warmly received news, uh, instruction. And so Paul, in, a, in the wonderful inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, reminds why we do what we do, why we believe about languages like Paul instructs, why we believe in the sanctity of marriage and the organization in which God places in the church. We do so, moreover, brethren. He says there's a reason why we gather. There's a reason why we get up in the morning on a Sunday. There's a reason why we get in our suits and our dresses. There's a reason why we travel to a building and gather together with others. There's a reason why we fellowship and we encourage and greet one another. There's a reason why we sing psalms and hymns. There's a reason why we listen to the Word of God, invite others to join us, and see God's grace change, mold, and shape us. There's a reason for it. And the reason, Paul says, I have declared, I have given to you. And what is that reason? He says, I declare unto you the gospel. The reason why we're here this morning is not because any of us are worthy to come and to listen to. It's not because we have anything special in and of ourselves. We are not anything to be bragging upon. We are truly dust and shaped and molded into the, uh, into the image of God. And by the grace of God, we are conforming to the image of Christ my friends, the reason we come together is not because of man, but because of a holy God. And that holy God is named Jesus Christ. We gather this morning because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's why we come together. That's why we go out and we tell the world about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't lift up a man. We lift up the gospel. We lift up Jesus Christ. He is the one that is worthy. He is the one that is inexhaustible. He is the one that is all-powerful. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ is the reason I'm here this morning and it's the reason why we go and we tell people the glorious good news of Jesus. It is the gospel this morning. Paul says, I declared it to you. I revealed. That's what that word reveal or declare means, to reveal, like to open up, to give a package or a gift and to reveal it before one. And Paul says, when I revealed it to you, you received it. I remember years ago, I was speaking with a man, telling him the gospel of Christ in front of his home. And as I presented the gospel to him and came to a point in which I told him it was as simple as knowing that you're a sinner and that because of our sin there's a punishment and that punishment is in a place called hell. But Jesus Christ gloriously came to this earth by way of a virgin birth. He is the one that paid the price for us. He is the one that died, was buried, and rose again. And I said, if you simply accept the gift, like accepting the gift of salvation, or the gift of a Christmas gift, just simply receive it by faith and trust in Christ, he will save you. Would you be willing to do that? And as I summarized the gospel plan, of course, we had spoken for many more and more minutes but as I summarized and gave him that invitation, that open opportunity to trust in Christ, he looked at me and he said something I'll never forget. He said, Justin, why wouldn't I? Why would I not receive this gift? And I looked at him and I said, that is one of the greatest responses I've ever had. 
why would one not receive the gospel? What a glorious gift it is. And Paul says, I declared it to you. I revealed it to you. I showed you the gospel of Christ. And notice what he says, ye received it. You did exactly what that man did on his front porch years ago as he bowed his head and received Christ as his personal Savior. Paul says, ye received the gospel. And he says, not only do you receive it, he says, but wherein ye stand. I love that. You see, it's not something that we simply receive and discard. We do that so often, do we not, with Christmas gifts. It might be our favorite Christmas gift, but then after about six months, it becomes old. We think, you know what, I would rather go on to something new. There's maybe something better that's come out. And I would like to upgrade even what I got just a few months ago into something different. And we cast it aside. But my friends, we don't have to ever worry about doing that with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that grows old about the gospel. There's nothing that grows tiresome about hearing about Jesus Christ. It is something and truly which we can stand and we can be rested upon. It is something in which encourages and inspires and challenges us to go forward with the gospel of Christ. My friends, it is something not only we receive, but it is something on which we stand. We stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And oh, my friends, in the coming weeks, as you carry on the torch, and as you pick up the torch of the gospel, my friends, I encourage you and I challenge you through the inspiration of the Spirit of God to stand upon the Holy Scriptures, to stand upon the gospel. Don't change. Don't let up. Carry forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look for greater ways to get the truth of the gospel out. Look for more opportunities to get the gospel out. Be creative, my friends. Let's get the gospel around this world. What an incredible thing it is that we have an opportunity to stand upon the gospel. But what is the gospel? Paul declared it. But what is it? Notice what he says. The gospel is that in which we remind ourselves of. Notice he says, by which you are also saved, if you keep in memory what I've preached unto you. I love this. Paul says, if you keep in memory, what does that mean? It's, if we were to say it in our ten days vernacular, it would be, don't you remember? <laughs> don't you remember that time in which you put your faith and trust in Christ? Don't forget that. And he says, if you don't have that, if you don't remember that, if you don't remember that time in which you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, he says, do it today. He says, if you believed in vain, if what you stated through words was emptiness. We've all met people who have sadly had head knowledge of the gospel, knew the gospel, but never believed it in their heart. And if that's you today, if you know the gospel, you've heard it. And if you've been here for any length of time, you have heard the gospel countless times. Something we mention every service nearly. It is something in which truly we preach. You've heard it. And if it's been empty words, empty to this point. Oh, maybe you've recited something. Maybe it was something that is just... Off, off of memory, but it was never something that came from the heart. May I encourage you to not believe in vain, but to get that settled this morning. Why? Because the gospel changes. The gospel works. But what is that gospel? Notice what the Bible continues. 
For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. I love that. Paul says, I delivered to you what I gave, what I received. Isn't that an incredible thing about the gospel? Is you can share it over and over and over and over again, and it never diminishes from the gift that you've been given. Think about that. You try doing that with your bank account. <laughs> and give and give and give and give. You're going to look at it one day and say, wait a minute, it's empty. <laughs> But the gospel account never empties. You can never give the gospel more than what you have received. It is eternal. It is unending. It is without equal. Paul said, I gave it to you. I received it and I gave it to you likewise. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I love how Paul succinctly puts that here. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Oh, what a precious promise that is. You see, Jesus did die for you and for me. He did die for our sins. Not our good deeds, not our best moments, for truly when we put them to the pure and pure and holy motives and heart of God, our righteousness, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. But what a wonderful thing it is that he died for our sins. Jesus did die, my friends. Hundreds witnessed his death on the cross. That Roman spear that pierced his side gives evidence and testimony of the death in which he died. There's some heresy that sweeps churches today. A theory that Jesus simply swooned at his death. A theory that simply says that Jesus simply passed out or he was near, he was in a almost lifeless state, but his heart was still beating and there was still life in his blood. The Bible teaches us that that is very much contrary to what Scripture tells us. This swooning theory that Jesus simply passed out and was laid in the tomb and that cool tomb then suddenly helped him to revive after a day or two and then he managed to remove the bandages that were wound around him so tightly and then he managed to roll the stone among the darkness of that tomb and then escaped past the guards that were there by that tomb and then hid himself until the third day is truly not scriptural. You see, the Roman soldiers knew he was dead. Think about this. The Roman executioner was very much an experienced man. He knew when someone was dead. Look at the Bible with me in John chapter 19. Keep your place there in 1 Corinthians 15. John 19, notice what the Bible says in verse number 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. The only way for that to happen, the only way for blood and water to come out is for someone to 
have died. One's heart literally needs to be ruptured for this to take place. And that is exactly what happened with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ chose to die. They did not have to break his bone. They did not have to break his legs. In fact, the Bible tells us in the following verse, in verse number 35, and he saw, and he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith, uh, what, uh, know it that he saith true that ye might believe verse number 36 for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled a bone of him shall not be broken the bible tells us that that was a fulfillment of the prophecy in psalms 34 when the bible tells us he keepeth all his bones not one of them is broken thank god that he truly was the fulfillment of the scriptures he died according to to the scriptures just as the word of god stated that he would die he died exactly as scriptures fulfilled my friends not one bone on jesus christ was broken that's an amazing thing thinking about the uh, 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 crucifixion and the trauma that his body experienced and yet the bible is true he did die they never had to break his legs to end the suffering on the cross, Jesus chose to die. For this swooning theory to be true that Jesus simply passed out, that means that the Lord's enemies, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees would leave Calvary without making sure that their enemy was not dead. Why would the enemies who had so viciously planned such a wicked evil to come to the Son of God leave Calvary without making sure that he was very dead? This means as well that if this swooning theory was to be of any creditable value that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, friends and disciples of Christ, And the faithful women that took Jesus down from the cross and prepared his body for burial, they did so knowing that his heart was still breathing or beating, that there was still breath in his lungs. They would have buried him knowing that Jesus was still alive if this theory was to be true. And then somehow through all the trauma and through all the weakness of the, uh, uh, of the incredible blood loss in which Jesus Christ uh, 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 bled out on the cross, this would also mean that he would have to unwrap those tightly wound bandages himself. And then in that weakened state to move the stone without notice of the Roman soldiers standing there at guard. You've got to go to great lengths to contradict Scripture to believe a theory like this swooning theory. It's so much easier to simply believe the Scriptures. It's so much easier to understand what the Bible teaches us in Psalm 22, Psalm 69, and Isaiah 53 as it foretold how Jesus would die on the cross, how he would suffer and pay for our sins, and that he would die for you and for me. The Bible teaches us in verse number 4 of our text that he did die and was buried was buried the bible teaches us 
that he was buried in a powerful, powerful fulfillment of prophecy. I like this. We mentioned Psalm 53 a moment ago, or Isaiah 53 a moment ago. Turn there if you would. Isaiah 53, verse number 9. This is just an incredible glimpse of how God fulfills Scripture in every way. Every word of prophecy that was given about Christ, Jesus has fulfilled, and the coming, a second coming, will be fulfilled. We can be assured of that this morning. In Isaiah 53, look at verse number 9. And he made his grave with the wicked. In other words, he died with the wicked. Did he not die in between two thieves? Yes, he did. Just as was foretold. But notice what Isaiah continues to say. And with the rich in his death. The Bible teaches us that Jesus would be buried with the rich. The two men that headed up the removal of Jesus Christ from the cross was a man named Nicodemus and a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Very much disciples in secret in many ways, the Bible says. But these men were two of the most influential and powerful members of the country. These were men of great wealth. These were men who were members of the Sanhedrin. And they would provide Jesus Christ, they would bury him with a king's ransom worthy of spices. Look at John chapter 19 with me, please. In John chapter 19, the Bible says, And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night. Again, there's that secret discipleship there. And brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Notice what it says. About a hundred pound weight. That was a lot of spice. This was not a burial that was done in poverty. He was buried with wealth. He was buried, as Isaiah would state, among wealth. He was placed in a valuable tomb. This tomb, Joseph of Arimathea would give to Jesus Christ, or borrow, I should say, to Jesus Christ, because he would only need it for three short days. (laughs) On that third day, he would rise again. But it was a valuable tomb. It was not a pauvre's, it would not be a a beggar's grave. It would be someone who would be buried of wealth and of prestige in that culture and that time frame. Christ died in wealth. Not wealth as in himself monetarily. The Bible says he had no place to lay his head. And yet he would be treated like a king with great wealth by these dear people. And God would preserve him even in burial. In Psalm 16, verse number 10, we see this foretold about Jesus Christ. For thou not, wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Peter, as he preached on the day of Pentecost, confessed and witnessed to this very fulfillment of prophecy. In Acts chapter 2, verse number 
verse number 27, Peter prophesied, or Peter confirmed the prophecy that was given in Psalm 16 as he stated, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ's body did not see corruption. He was in that grave such a short period of time that there was no corruption that touched our Savior. He was in, he is incorruptible. He always has been and he always will be. He was buried just like the scripture stated, just as God foretold. God gave fulfillment of that promise. We come back to verse number four and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. I like the way John Phillips gives this illustration. I'm going to give the same illustration today. He writes, one day Napoleon was a master of Europe, putting down kings, controlling the lives of millions. But look now, he is a caged lion, an exile on a remote island, St. Helena. Under constant surveillance, a prisoner of the British Navy. Something must have happened. Something did. Waterloo. One day Jesus was nailed to a Roman cross, beaten, scourged to the bone, crowned with thorns, spit upon and mocked. But look now. Within a few short years, he is acknowledged to be God by millions, and there is a church dedicated to his worship in every major city of the Roman Empire. Something must have happened. Something did the resurrection. Come back to Waterloo. The, water, the battle was fought on a Sunday morning in the year 1815. Across the channel, England watched and waited for some word about the outcome of that fight. The fate of Europe hung in the balance. Then word came. The semaphore began to flash the tidings to the eager watchers on the British shore. It was, however, a foggy day. The message was only partially received. It read, Wellington defeated. The country and news spread and went into mourning. But then the weather cleared, and the full message came through. Wellington defeated Napoleon. Now come back to Calvary. The Lord of glory was nailed to Calvary's tree. He was taken down, dead, and was buried. The rocks rent. The sun went out. The graves gaped wide. The message seemed all too clear. Jesus defeated. The tomb was closed upon him. It was sealed and guarded. It was all over. Death had triumphed. The world spun on its way through the space, carrying the lifeless body of God incarnate. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. The message came through loud and clear. Jesus defeated death. Hallelujah for that. Thank God the message fully has come through clear. Oh yes, it may have been foggy for the disciples in those three days, but thank God the message cleared. And thank God Jesus is alive. I love what the Bible teaches us in Revelation 1 when he says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen.
and I have and have the keys of hell and death. My friends, he is the key. Thank God for that. He is the key of life. The Bible teaches us in Matthew chapter 27 that the people remembered his words. They remembered that there was power behind his words. They remembered his promise and they wanted to try to keep that message of Jesus Christ's resurrection to be quiet. They did so with great uh, uh, a cost and great uh, inconvenience to themselves. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 63, we see sir, saying, Sir, we remember that the deceiver, speaking of Jesus Christ, falsely speaking of him, of course, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead. So the last heir shall be made worse than, or shall be worse than the first. And then we find in Matthew 28 the cover up of his resurrection. Jesus was victoriously risen again. The grave was empty. The tomb was empty. The stone had rolled away. And the Bible teaches us in Matthew 28 that they tried to cover it up. But God wouldn't let him. I love what the Bible says in verse number 11. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priest all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. They tried to cover it up. They tried to cover up the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to take the truth and spin it into a lie. But the truth is this morning that Jesus did exactly what he stated as he prophesied in Matthew chapter 12 in verse number 40. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Lord, and, 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 and praise God, he would rise again. He would be victorious. He is alive and well. My friends, we serve a risen Savior today. He is risen. He is the fulfillment. He is the gospel this morning. What a God we have. And because of Jesus Christ, we have hope today. We have hope to worship. We have reason to sing. We have reason to lift up our voice. Why? Because God, the Son of Man, the Son of God, truly rose again. He is the fulfillment. He is our way of salvation. We have hope today, not because of a human being, but because of God. And the evidence that Paul reminds us of is overwhelming. Look at verse number Five, please, of our text. And that he was seen of Cephas. The Bible teaches us that there was a private time in which Jesus Christ appeared to Peter. That's what that word Cephas speaks of. He, Paul used that earlier in 1 Corinthians. That word Cephas means Peter, Simon Peter, the impetuous Peter, the one who denied, and yet Jesus Christ lovingly came to him in a private and personal time letting him known that he was alive we see this testified of in luke chapter 24 and verse number 34 when the bible says saying the lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to simon 
Jesus went to Peter and the other disciples there on the shore of Galilee. The Bible tells us Peter testified of the moments in which he witnessed that Jesus Christ was alive and well. In verse number 32 of Acts 2, Peter testifies, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. In Acts 4, uh, verse number 2, or verse number 10, excuse me, he continues to testify, Be it known unto you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does, uh, doth this man stand here before you whole. Peter understood that Jesus Christ was alive and well. He had seen him. He had handled him. He was with him. He had watched him eat. He had watched him prepare even a meal for him. He was truly one that had been uh, one that had been wit a witness to the very to the, to the resurrection and to the living nature of his Savior. The Bible teaches us that not only was he seen of Cephas or of Peter, but then of the twelve. In Luke chapter 24, in verse number 36, we see a story in which the disciples saw testify and saw the moment in which they were able to see Jesus Christ face to face after the resurrection. The Bible says, and as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen a spirit and he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? Why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a an honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. Not only did Peter see Jesus Christ, but the disciples saw Jesus Christ. They were able to handle his hands and his feet. They saw him eat. They saw his flesh and his bones standing before them. They saw Jesus Christ physically giving testimony and evidence that Jesus is alive. If you're looking for evidence this morning, you can trust the account of Cephas or of Peter. You can trust the a, a, a witness of the disciples. And my friends, we can continue on as Paul does. Notice how he continues in verse number 6 as he says, After that he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once this was not done in a corner in fact paul testifies of this that jesus's resurrection was truly something that was transparent and open there was nothing to hide there was truly a wonderful opportunity to show how the grace of god was enabling salvation through the son of god in Acts 26, 26, Paul testifies to King Agrippa. And as he does so, he says, For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. The Bible teaches us that truly the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not a hidden event, but it was open and transparent. 
You want to know the, the difference this morning between a church that preaches a religion versus a church that preaches a relationship? A church that preaches a religion is going to hide. It's going to take some things and it's going to try to cover things up. It's going to try to keep things to themselves and keep things quiet, almost in a cult-like status. But a church that preaches a relationship with Christ, there's nothing to hide. There's everything to proclaim. Jesus is alive and we want the world to know it. The difference is truly stark and light and night, a light and day. The Bible tells us in verse number 7 of our text, after that he was seen of James. That James that the, Paul is speaking of here is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, the one who grew up in the home with Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus, sometime during that time in which before he ascended up to heaven, after his resurrection, that there was some time in which Jesus spent with his family, apparently James at least, Maybe his whole family, we don't really know. But we know the evidence in which was portrayed to them because something triggered in James' heart and life. There was something that compelled him to believe in, his son, in, in the Son of God, his half-brother, Jesus Christ. That's why he writes in James 1, 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a time in which James put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ just like you and I have. You see, just because he grew up in the family with Jesus did not mean that he did not need a Savior. He needed a Savior just like you and I. He was a sinner. He needed, he needed to be saved by the grace of God just like we need to be saved by the wonderful grace and mercy of God. And James came to know Jesus, his half-brother, as Jesus as his Savior, as his personal Savior. My friends, what a wonderful and powerful thing that is. And thank God that the list of witnesses continues to grow. My friends, it went from 1 to 12 to 500 at once, above a 500 at once. And now not only uh, others outside of Jesus' family, but in those in Jesus' family knew and saw and could give testi testimony that he is alive and well. But the Bible says in verse number 7 that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. All the apostles. Apparently Paul here is referring to others who saw Jesus Christ and was with him and those who weren't one of the 12 disciples that followed him but were ones that like Nicodemus who considered himself a disciple and uh, the Bible teaches us that he wasn't listed with one of the 12 but truly he did see Christ and ones like them who saw the Jesus Christ in person who watched his ministry and watched him as he was victoriously rose again. The Bible teaches us that there were others, others that were considered in the apostleship that saw Jesus Christ. The list keeps growing. In a court of law, it takes just two or three witnesses to validate a fact, let alone hundreds upon hundreds. Those who even discredited Jesus, like James. James didn't believe in Jesus Christ as his Savior while he was growing up. In fact, he tried to convince Jesus Christ to not continue in the gospel ministry not continue in his ministry 
And yet, he trusted in Christ. The list and evidence becomes overwhelming. In verse number 8, notice what the Bible says, and last of all, seen of me also as one born out of due time. Paul says, I have seen the Lord alive and well. May I recall our minds to Acts chapter 9, one of my favorite portions of Scripture. In verse number 1, the Bible says, In Saul, Paul, in, one, in Corinthians, but Saul before he got saved. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest. And desired of him letters to Damascus and synagogues, if he found any of this way, whether they're men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Paul, or Saul, is not Jesus' friend at this point. In fact, he's doing everything he can to stifle that name and to quench that name from going out. He did not want the name of Jesus Christ to go out any further. And he was doing everything in his power, including killing and murdering and slaughtering innocent lives because of the name of Jesus Christ. But something changed. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Paul says, if you want another evidence, if you want another witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, I can give testimony of that. He says, I can recall that way on the, or, or, or that road to Damascus. I remember that time in which that great light shone round about me, and I remember that conversation that I had with Jesus Christ. On that road there, I had the privilege to be a witness that he is alive and well. Jesus lives, and the testimony the evidence is overwhelming this morning. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the gospel. He is the gospel. And then Paul concludes with the faith for worship. Look at verse number 9 with me, please. Paul's heart here is just truly transparent. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Could you imagine the faces that must have haunted Paul because of his murderous spirit? For salvation. Could you envision him waking up at night from hearing in his ears the screams or the, rather the plea of a man named Stephen looking up into heaven and saying, I see him. 
lay not this sin to their charge. The loving compassion as they would take the clothes of a man stoned for preaching Christ and lay him at his feet. I can only envision the heart of Paul as he must have been haunted by that memory. The faces and the screams from children as their parents were pulled out of their arms. And parents slaughtered and killed in front of their children because they believed in Jesus. The horrible, unspeakable acts in which he did to intimidate with fear and put in it trembling the hearts of Christians because they were preaching the truth of the gospel. The faces the tears, the brokenness in which he must have recalled over and over again. He recalls it here. He says, God sought to call me an apostle, but I'm not one to be chosen. He says, of all the apostles, I am the least. He says, I'm the lowest of them all. He says, don't look to me. I know my hands drip with blood of innocent lives. I know they do. I persecuted Christ. I wonder if his heart might have looked and thought if I was part of that Sanhedrin that led Jesus to Jerusalem, I would have given consent. Maybe he was, was one of those voices that giving consent to crucifying Jesus. But he understood of the sin and of the things in which truly was a, a part of his heart and a part of his a part of his memories. And he knew that he was only able to do what he had done, only able to preach the gospel like he had. Why? Because of verse number 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. His grace wasn't empty. He wasn't, it wasn't an empty amount of grace. God's help wasn't in vain. I truly did everything I could to preach Christ more, excuse me, more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. He says, it's but by the grace of God that I can preach Christ. It was by the grace of God that I'm able to preach and to tell others of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God that I am what I am. I am uh, able to be called an apostle this morning, not because of who I am, Paul stated, but because of the wonderful, glorious grace of God. Paul said, I am an apostle, not because of of who I am, but because of the grace of God this morning. And oh, my friends, what a wonderful challenge to us today. The gospel works. The gospel enables us. 
His grace is sufficient. His grace moves and enables us to go forward by faith. His grace, my friends, is that same grace that enabled Paul to do that which was out of character, if we can put it that way. It was out of his nature, and yet God transformed and shaped Paul into that in which he never thought he would. My friends, the grace of God is without limits. If it can turn a murderous man into a man who would become a martyr for the cause of Christ, it can change you and I. It can change us. Paul knew God's grace helped him accomplish much for the cause of Christ. Some estimate that he traveled over 12,000 miles by foot and sea to take the gospel to millions. And Paul understood that it was all the grace of God. He knew it was God who told the story. Then we come to verse number 11. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. He said, we preached the gospel. We told you of the good news of Jesus Christ. And as we told you the good news, so ye believed. What a testimony. What a powerful statement of the gospel. The gospel changed the Corinthians' lives. These Corinthians heard the gospel as servants, as employers, as rulers, as idol worshipers. They heard the gospel as those focused fully upon themselves. And when they heard the good news, they believed it. And as they believed it, God began to change their life. The gospel changes us. It changes us. What an awesome thing it is that we can stand on the gospel. The gospel this morning gives us hope. Is it, it is complete evidence. Unrefutable evidence. It's the reason why we're here this morning. And it's the reason which we can stand by faith and carry the gospel to people who have never heard. To people, people who need Jesus. May we stand on the gospel. Preach it so others may receive it.